You're listening to the Soul Strategies podcast hosted by the team here at Soul Strategies. We hope you like the latest episode and thanks for tuning in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Strategies podcast. I'm your host, James Ray. James gets political on TikTok. And today we're going to be discussing progressive disappointment with the Biden administration and the hope for progressive politics with returning guest Tori Ramirez. They are a political activist and educator out of Texas, and you can find them on TikTok at the handle at Tori Noodles and on Twitter at Noodle Tori. So, Tori, let's get started. What an interesting six months it's been. (laughs) (laughs) You know, honestly, it doesn't feel like it's been six months. You know, Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about how this sort of, oh, it didn't happen in the first week. We'll wait another month. Oh, we'll wait another three months, right? It still feels like we're in the first 100 days of the presidency and Joe Biden is kind of a newbie, but (laughs) we've we've been, we've, we've crossed 100 days and I don't feel like anything has gotten done. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, To say the very least, uh, for background, the Biden administration is on paper the most progressive administration we have seen, which (laughs) I, uh, at this point, I am starting to think uh, says a lot less about how progressive Biden is, but more so how low the bar really was for him to jump over. Uh, That being said, in the span of these six months, we've seen barely any movement on core campaign promises, whether that be immigration, whether that be wages that have seen at best minimal pushes, whether that be student debt reform or any kind of student debt relief, which we've seen about $2.8 billion uh, forgiven to very narrow groups with, uh, in my opinion, some interesting barriers to entry. But none of the widespread forgiveness that we would have expected from an an administration that was promising immediate forgiveness of up to $10,000 minimum Uh, Instead, we've seen the creation of committees, the continued U.S. imperialist actions overseas through multiple, uh, whether it be multiple drone strikes in Iraq and Syria, or whether it be the continued support of the Israeli government with a really minimal criticism of human rights act violations and crimes against humanity that are ongoing in the region. It is uh, generally disappointing, I think, for a majority of progressives, myself included. I don't know about you, Tori, but I think it's... uh, As someone who was more or less convinced that by uh, voting for Biden, we would be getting something other than just him simply being better than Trump. I think it's uh, it's been relatively disappointing. Well, I mean, I wish I could say I'm disappointed and I feel bad that I kind of saw this coming. I think uh, you mentioned earlier about how on paper Biden's the most progressive president we've had. And I remember during the uh, election during 2020, right? Um, the party platform that uh, Biden was running on was the most progressive party platform ever written. However, every step of the campaign trail, Joe Biden continued to separate himself further and further from the stuff he committed to on paper. I mean, we saw, you know, publicized health care turn into the public option, turn into, I haven't heard anything about any sort of socialized health care, um, you know, We've seen the Green New Deal turn into, we'll continue to keep on fracking to, oh, I don't know anything about that. The Gulf of, uh, of the Gulf of Mexico is on fire, you know, meanwhile, like it, it, it's, I'm, I'm, I wish I could be disappointed, but I'm honestly not surprised. And if anything, I'm just sort of annoyed uh, because a lot of progressives were voicing uh, these concerns being like, hey, like, you know, I'm still going to vote for Biden. I don't really like what happened to Bernie in the primaries, but like, 
things aren't looking too good. I don't think Joe Biden's our progressive woke king that we're hoping him to be. And, you know, establishment Democrats and liberals will be like, oh, no, you guys are overreacting. You guys aren't looking at the data points. Here we are uh, past 100 days into the presidency. I haven't seen a lot of results. No, and I mean, we have seen mild success on things you would contemporarily expect from a Democratic, uh, you know, Democratic presidency. You know, we're seeing, you know, job additions. We're seeing vaccination rates increase slowly. You know, we're a little bit behind track, but nothing, I think, too horrendous or nothing I didn't expect out of this country, given the politicalization of vaccination uh, that we've seen specifically regarding COVID. <laughs> That's so um, much more of a sociological uh, like issue rather than, you know, uh, Joe Biden issue. I yes. mean, like, I, I think we were talking the other day about how Joe Biden is trying to take credit for things that are just happening in the world. Uh, you mentioned this uh, hot dog thing or Fourth of oh, July yeah. food plate thing. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, over... <laughs> Well, it's really important to note that it was a, it was ridiculous for a number of reasons. Over the 4th of July, the Biden administration was uh, discussing how America is back or America is back together, which I, I think from a progressive lens <laughs> is, in, is an interesting comment at best. From a conservative um, lens, too. Yeah, it, it, seem, it seems Biden might be living in a different universe than us, but God bless him for figuring out how to live in it. Um, <laughs> I would say... Uh, during the 4th of July, dis, uh, even disregarding those messages, there was White House messaging about the reduction in costs of your average 4th of July meal. Um, for those of you wanting exact numbers just to really demonstrate the audacity of this, um, they were celebrating a 16 cent reduction in overall cost. Um, and, and that <laughs> being somewhat misleading when you consider that like food costs overall year to year have still been increasing uh, on average across the country. You know, we've seen <laughs> some small offsets if you're able to cherry pick which uh, foods you're using to like, categorize a July 4th meal. But, you know, overall, we're still seeing food costs outpace wage growth as far as the minimum. And we're still more, I think, problematically um, not really solving any of the structural issues for workers beyond uh, a meal for a holiday. It seems <laughs> odd to me. Um, Especially because there's no real concrete, well, uh, like connection between the food costs being lower and any policy Joe Biden has like passed. Yeah, I would be very hard pressed to, to be, I, I would be interested to see where the White House is pulling um, the figures from, you know, are, are pulling their sources from that are like, that would demonstrate how a Biden policy really led to a reduction in food costs of those specific food groups. Um, but at that point, I think we'd be getting way too far into the weeds to disprove the Biden administration on a 16 cent difference. And I think that's kind of the beauty of that, um, <laughs> to put it colloquially, that's the beauty of that flex is that it's so absurdly insignificant that I don't even want to waste time fact checking it. Um, yes. <laughs> so I guess they win in that regard, but it, it's, it's nonetheless fascinating, I think, seeing the Biden administration do this. Hey, you're listening to the Soul Strategies Podcast. Take a moment to listen to some of our esteemed champions and their takeaways from the program. And I'm glad that I was a part of that that I had the opportunity to even be involved with that, with some legitimate organizations that help people who want to do right. 
by other people, you know, by communities. You know, utilize my, my resources, utilize my networks. Um, this has, the last month, I've had some tremendous things happen. It's your time to become a leader. Go to soulstrategies.com to find out more. There is something to be said there, right? Where it's just so marginable, marginal and insignificant. Why would we want to pay attention to it? And, you know, this is what establishment Democrats and uh, center left liberals do um, to progressive change, right? Where we uh, ignore the structural issues because things seem okay. But mm -hmm. the things that we were raging about last summer, right, things that we were marching in the streets, people were saying that we were writing about, they still exist, even though we have a different guy in office. The only difference is this guy has better optics and is a little bit nicer. Yeah. And, and you know, and I think that's an interesting point to be made, you know, specifically in regards to Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, depending on the crowd you were in, I heard abolish the police and I heard defund and divest. And either way, I, I think abolish ice crowd, too. I heard an abolish you know. ice crowd, too. Yet here we seem to be. Um, but I mean, like as far as as far as policing, the Biden administration and their in their updated proposed budget, the budgets have proposed almost double <laughs> the amount of money for police hiring programs. Um, they, they've been proposing at least rhetorically increasing police funding for the sake of better training, which is absurd to me for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, some of the best funded and best trained police forces in the world uh, in the United States tend to be the most problematic for one. Um, uh, you know, you don't I have to believe... look much further than Los Angeles and New York City. Yeah, I mean, at LAPD, I think this past week actually, uh, I think confiscated like a bunch of fireworks and once they were in LAPD's uh, possession, they set them off. And like, I don't know if they uh, killed anyone, but I think people were injured and it caused significant damage. Yeah, well, to clarify, the uh, the LAPD seized several uh, several hundred pounds or several tons of explosives, uh, put them in a truck uh, in a low income community, and decided that the best way to get rid of the explosives was lighting them off in mass in a single explosion in the middle of the street, which is. Uh, you know, I'll admit, you know, as someone who was in a fraternity, I can understand the line of logic that <laughs> might have contributed to that. But I think even, However, even the you dumbest have college the training students. In, you yeah. have the training and supposed funding needed to go ahead and, you know, have that logic. I don't want my police officers to have the same, you know, logic as fraternity brothers no god forbid that, that the world the, the, the society would love crumble. to the frat brothers though y'all are cool but um. <laughs> I appreciate, appreciate that but no i mean and this is the this you know it brings us back to that though is it, when you look at the combined um cost of u.s policing worldwide if you were to take the budgets of the world's largest military forces and, and include u.s domestic policing budgets u.s police rank top five in the world's largest militaries uh, you know, another interesting, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but, you know, everyone talks about how the DPRK, North Korea, is this, you know, really big, scary force that is like, just like going to absolutely like demolish foreign relations. Um, and, you know, we don't have to get into that whole can of worms right now. You know, DPRK <laughs> conversations on the left can get a little bit spicy. However, one thing that remains true is that this uh, foreign enemy, as it's painted, the DPRK, 
has a smaller military budget than the NYPD. Yeah. That's how I mean, much money we spend on policing. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the thing is when you look at these increase in budgets, one has to at some point say, where's the line? Um, because police are going to continually ask for increased funding for, you know, their own personal reasons. That's that's the, the core argument every year when we're looking at budgets for every institution. No institution wants to cut their own budget or say we're good where we are because there can always be money spent somewhere. And we get to the point where even if we're targeting the funds given to police officers for hiring programs, I mean, towards hiring programs, it seems to me as if that doesn't actually start to even get close to fixing the structural issues that exist in American policing. Not one bit. Um, Like, you know, it's great that police officers can get better training, but when the core assumptions and the core, like, the core problems still exist. We're not doing anything but giving more money to these people before they inevitably fuck up. Uh, you know, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think, the issue we really end up running into, particularly with the Biden administration, is, is you know, to come back to topic, is a refusal to really acknowledge serious structural problems in a way that is um, any, that is in any way serious. You know, you get mouth service from the Biden administration about racial equity, um, about wanting to like make the economy work for everyone. But, you know, it, it seems to me as if it's another one of those examples where, you know, there's that, that contemporary slogan of revolutionary slogans and revolutionary ideas die when they enter the Democratic Party. <laughs> and exactly. And it's unfortunate because, you know, you look at a lot of the rhetoric, right? And you look, at, you look at the rhetoric uh, as opposed to the actions. If you really care about racial equity, well, we could talk about the fact that like out of the $1.7 trillion of outstanding student debt relief, two thirds of that is held by women. And the majority of it, of that, like the, the people with the highest amounts of debt on average are black women. Uh, when you look at student debt forgiveness, if you were to do uniform debt forgiveness, you're disproportionately benefiting people of color, particularly black and indigenous people of color, but you're, you're also, you're looking at a gendered equity program as well. Um, you know, you look at minimum wage jobs, uh, the people who work minimum wage jobs are predominantly <laughs> yeah, women and predominantly people of color. Uh, like the, the, this is not, especially when you look at when you integrate sub minimum wage work, uh, it, it, you know, like serving it, well, and I mean, a lot of these structural changes could functionally do the things that they're messaging, but for some reason, they're unwilling to even really meet near the middle on some of these issues. Um, you know, at least no. the Clinton administration was adamant about like a $12 or $12.50 minimum wage. Um, it's well, weird to regress from the Clintons, but here we are. It's, it's, I didn't even think about it like that. We did regress from the Clintons and the Clinton administration was already. Pretty ooh. moderate. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, ooh, I was going to, I lost my little thought there. Oh, um, about how. Uh, Democrats will go ahead and look at these issues regarding women and race, right? But then ignore labor issues. And like, as you like, as you were explaining, labor issues heavily intersect with women's and uh, POC issues. So it's weird that we're paying all of this lip service towards these identities without looking at the one identity that unites them and impacts them the most. And that is people aren't getting paid enough. There aren't enough social safety nets. You know, we are, uh, we are uh, disproportionately policing the communities that they exist in. Like, it's just, 
Yeah, I mean, and it goes even further than that. You know, when you look at structural disparities in healthcare, uh, I mean, there's there's clearly a racial element. Uh, you know, when you when you is healthcare is actually a really good example. When you look at educational attainment, uh, when like all of these things that are progressive issues for um, primarily economic reasons have mass racial components and intersectional components outside of even that. I mean, and, and that's kind of the issue I feel when we're looking at the Biden administration in these first six months is we're noting a lack of real intersectional structural thought uh, and the preference, I guess, or the, the preferred status of uplifting at best, maybe aesthetic changes for the most part. Now, and that's not to give the Biden administration no credit. It is definitely better than the Trump administration, but to be fair, that bar is in hell and that's probably not the best, <laughs> the best standard. Uh, and, you know, I agree with you. I, I was, it was one of those uh, disappointed but not surprised moments. I think when we looked at, started seeing the Biden administration post-election tilt much more center. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons we could get into about why the Biden administration, why Biden in particular wants to play to the middle as much as he does. Um, but it's still painful to watch, especially given the circumstances. You know, we, there would be no better time for progressive change than coming out of a pandemic. Uh, than coming out of a mass recession, than, than finally being um, liberating the working class in some facet, um, even, if, even if it's some small facet by just adjusting the minimum wage to be a little bit closer to livable, which is really what the $15 is going to do. Um, you know, th these are just basic core campaign promises. And, it, and it's, it's odd that we're not even getting kind of what was offered. Uh, we're we're kind of just getting mouth service. Yeah, I mean, service. like... It it, like in regards to climate justice, I'm reading this book called uh, Refusing Death by Nadia Y. Kim. And this was written during the Trump administration, but I haven't seen anything significantly change under the Biden administration where uh, LA is one, I didn't know this, but LA is a big source of oil in America. There's a lot of fracking that goes on in there. Um, and as a result, you know, it provides a lot of jobs to mainly the uh, immigrant working class that's mainly uh, Latino and Filipino. Um, and they are disproportionately uh, diagnosed with asthma. Their children are born unhealthy. Um, and a lot of this could have been solved. And, you know, it's a, it's a racial problem. It's a class problem. If we could have fulfilled on some of the Green New Deal promises, but those people are still out there fighting to go ahead and get those companies regulated. But the Biden administration and other establishment Democrats are just turning a blind cheek to it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and even even in the working, uh, like even in the uh, the kind of like working what we temporarily describe as like the Rust Belt um, in Appalachia, that it's that same diagnosis, right? Uh, you have coal country completely left out pretty much from what we've been able to see of like massive like sweeping policies uh this idea of kind of this lost red like area i think has permeated into the biden administration in a way that we haven't really seen any like any real economic or infrastructure oriented plans that specifically target problems you see in appalachia which is uh high rates of, of like illness and cancer we have carcinogens and lead in uh, in our in the drinking water in Appalachia and many communities, like you have you have water that is by no means safe to drink, um, and these are fairly basic. I mean, you have Wi-Fi disparities as well. Like internet access is kind of critical in the modern age, and you know you have all of these just general disparities that have relatively easily easy fixes. That uh, you know infrastructure is purely a money line issue. 
Um, you put enough money behind an infrastructure project, it will get done uh, as long as you have competent management. I'm um, saying that as somebody who used to work in construction. And, and it's, uh, it, it's frustrating to see so many people who might have had a better outcome had we had a more progressive president uh, now kind of suffer under the weight of normalcy. And I fear that moving into the midterms and particularly in the short term, but in the long term, moving into 2024, that that's going to seriously hinder the Biden administration's ability to be competitive on a national level and really to the Democratic Party's position. Uh, Democrats only have a majority in the Senate because they have the vice president. You know, it's a 50-50 split. Um, even without, you know, even assuming we lose the Senate, like we could have further reduction of the majority in the House. I mean, we could see the Biden administration lose in 24. It wouldn't necessarily surprise me at this point from the performance I've seen. You know, it's important to know we're only an eighth <laughs> into the Biden administration's term, but already I'm seeing in progressive circles a general turn from acceptance that we're not going to get everything immediately to kind of us being like, okay, but where's anything? And, well, and that's a problem. Well, that's the thing is that, you know, the first 100 days um, that a president is in office sets the tone for the rest of the presidency. And I'm scared that the tone has already been set. You know, this tone of let's lean heavy on that we're the ones uniting America, that we're bringing America back. While these people in Appalachia, these people in LA, these people in you and I's hometown are continuing to suffer. But apparently America is united and back. I don't see that around me when I look around. I don't either. But that being said, I, I am to a degree hopeful um, in some regards. Uh, <laughs> Transitioning to the kind of the second point of this discussion, you know, moving past the kind of like lackluster performance and what some might describe as overt failures of the Biden administration in the first six months or the first nearly, nearly six months, we're seeing a continued upswell of progressive support. Um, I haven't yeah. seen progressive energy die off in the way that I kind of expected it to, to a degree. Um, if anything, it's intensified under the Biden administration on the left, which has been really, really fascinating. Now, I think moderate Democrats um, and center left liberals have really dug their heels in uh, for the most part. But that being said, like past center left liberals, like even looking at progressives, looking at leftists, et cetera, you're really starting to see this upswell of, of both people trying to run not only to beat Republicans in their districts, but to primary their, their, their own Democratic colleagues which is nice. Yeah, like, I know that uh, in, uh, in my city, we recently elected two DSA members in the city council, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's also been conversations about how because of this lackluster performance from the Democrats, you know, we're building a stronger socialist movement, progressive movement, where the DSA is like, hey, we need to start separating ourselves from the Democrats and start holding on our own. Um, how beneficial do you think that is? Because you know, I can see where it feels scary to go ahead and uh, be split up. But at the same time, like promises haven't been delivered. What do they expect us to do? <laughs> I mean, I'm biased, uh, clearly. But I, I, I mean, I think DSA strategy over the years has been we will co-opt the, um, the Democratic Party's infrastructure 
and in doing so potentially be able to leverage uh, power internally and also get DSA backed members in so that we can slowly start changing the entire like composition of the national party um, and these state level parties. You know, Nevada is a really good example. Um, other states where we're starting to see really nice DSA success, you know, New York City saw pretty moderate DSA success, I think, in these last election cycles. Um, LA has been seeing an upswell of DSA, even in my home, my home state, especially in my home county, even, but my home state of Indiana has seen an upswell of DSA support here. Um, you know, not as crazy as I would, as I, as I would hope, of course, um, but you're still seeing an upswell of support for DSA. I think strategically DSA is doing the right thing. Um, you know, I, I, I admittedly, I'm a dues paying DSA member. I have friends who are national delegates and in, in, in leadership in, in DSA. And I, I like their general strategy. I think uh, as far as labor organizing, you're not going to get a better leftist organ than DSA right now. Uh, their rank and file strategy has been ridiculously effective from what I've been able to see on the yes. ground. Um, I think electorally, they're doing some really, really good things. I think the more seats they pick up, the better. You know, we're looking in, in Washington's ninth, ninth congressional district. We're seeing an incumbent, an insurgent um, DSA-backed candidate potentially unseating Adam Smith, like who's the head of the Armed Services Committee, right? The, these are these are major shifts. Um, and I think over time, as more DSA-backed candidates get in control of particularly statewide positions, because I think those are more important, really. Um, I, I've always been kind of... Uh, of the opinion that statewide legislature, uh, legislating bodies and statewide organizing is, is probably more important than national uh, as far as like building infrastructure. But I think, you know, we're looking at, at victories for DSA on a, on a state level already. And we're seeing, we're seeing a certain fight on the on a national level that I think is interesting. Um, whether it be um, Stephanie Gallardo campaign in Washington, whether it be Nina Turner in, in her home state, what, you know, we're looking at these like insurgent kind of progressive candidates who are even going up against moderate Democratic opposition and finding that they're they're doing fairly well because there's discontentment with that party. And DSA's backing and support is obviously helpful in that. I think with Nina Turner in particular, I think DSA is huge. Um, but you're starting to see progressives really build out infrastructure in a way that they haven't. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, you know, we'll see, I guess. It will, it, it's one of those things where we won't really know how successful it's been until like 10 years down the line minimum. Yes. Um, but as of right now, I'm, I'm very optimistic, all things considered. Same here. I'm definitely more optimistic seeing, you know, that DSA is like continuing to build some more power and get more support there is like like you mentioned earlier like i don't i don't think the fire has necessarily died out so much it hasn't hasn't gotten as much media coverage but you know people that were showing up to dsa meetings and orgs they're they're still showing up a year later um you know people are looking at the material conditions and being like oh, the only thing that has changed is figureheads. And there are people, there are, you know, progressives coming into office being like, hey, I'm like you and I want to see material change too. Um, so, you know, as much as I don't like how the Biden administration is continuing to play into the do nothing Democrat rope, um, I think it is pushing a lot of people left, which is exactly what we need. 
No, I mean, I agree completely. And I, I you know, <laughs> obligatory plug. I mean, Soul Strategies has been doing a lot of really interesting things for progressive candidates nationwide. Um, whether it be several candidates in the East, a few candidates in the West, and, and a lot of people spread in between. You know, we're looking at national level campaigns. There's a handful, um, and then a, a lot of other things scattered throughout. And I, I think uh, as a progressive org, we've been seeing significant growth, and we've been seeing significant interest, particularly because there is um, an upswell of campaigns that really want to do well and want to maximize their choices of winning, um, which is something we do provide. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, know. I, every progress, most progressive candidates that I've shaken hands with, um, you know, I've met Bernie Sanders before, right? Every time I've shaken hands with a progressive candidate, and I've met other politicians, politicians as well, is they've always felt like people. They've always felt human to me, because, like, you know, not to sound like, you know, now after school special, but they care. <laughs> and people are, you know, are feeling so alienated from politics. They no longer want to feel that alienation anymore. And that's where progressives are really able to go ahead and swoop in and be like, listen, I grew up in the same neighborhood as you. I grew up in a worse neighborhood than you. So I, you know, your people are my people and we want to go ahead and get something done. No, and I agree. And I, I think also we've started seeing that it's finally this dismantlement of like the old school political pedigree. Um, yes. Which has been so nice. The Stephanie, uh, the Stephanie, Stephanie's campaign in, in Washington's nice district, uh, a woman we're working with right now is she is a high school teacher, an ex high school teacher for years um, in Louisville. You're seeing Charles Booker, who was a state legislator, um, but who has a working class background. Uh, and you have other people in, in Louisville, actually in particular as of today, who are uh, activists and organizers in Louisville who are now running for state congressional uh, races. I think that is fascinating and, I, and, and really beautiful. Um, and I think I'm, my hope is that moving into the next few years, particularly moving towards 2022, that we really start to see uh, progressives either unseat moderate democratic um, options or maybe move towards at least being competitive on a local level which I think is a super, super critical thing. Yes, I mean, like friendly reminder to everyone like listening, please be as active as you can in your local elections. You know, I, you know, I would argue being active in your local elections and local politics consistently is more important than the one time you voted in 2020 or 2016. This really affects the people around you even more than uh, federal electoralism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, with that being said, I think uh, it, that's actually a pretty good place to end it, I would say. Uh, yes. So <laughs> once again, thank you, Tori Ramirez, for coming on to the show. Uh, for anyone who's listening, if you're interested more in their work, you can find them on TikTok with the handle at Tori Noodles or on Twitter at Noodles Tori. Regarding us specifically at Soul Strategies, we have Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever you need. And you can find me at James Political on TikTok. And you can also find me on Twitter. But anyway, thank you again, Tori, for coming in. And I hope you, you have a wonderful day.